So this evening, uh, we're going to continue our practice. And so I would like to encourage you to keep practicing while I'm talking and not to make it something different than what we've been doing, which is staying aware and staying awake to what's happening here and here. Like in the interactive uh, investigations that we've been doing, it's practice. And so the talk, uh, which sometimes feels a little like um, entertainment, it's okay, you could be entertained if it's a good enough talk to be entertained in, but, but also make it practice. Keep paying attention to what happens experientially as you hear the talk, the content, and as you're aware of the talk and the content, and as you're aware of your reaction to the talk and the content. So keep paying attention to your body, heart, and mind as part of practice. <clears throat> and we'll continue to talk about the themes of the retreat that we've been talking about, the experience of um, aging and the kind of dukkha and sukha pleasure that can come with aging. And when we used to do this retreat in the old days, meaning a few years ago, originally we, this was the elders retreat. And at least to my mind, that wasn't a sexy name, the elders <laughs> retreat. Or it wasn't, you know, it was okay, but you know, I kept thinking about, well, what are we actually doing? Oh, we're talking about aging, we're talking about dying, and we're talking about awakening. And so then that became the name of the retreat because that's more precise about what this is about. <clears throat> and um, I appreciate that very much because we, especially because of the awakening part, this is not just about eldering or being elders or being older, or that's part of it, but that's just part of the human deal as far as I can tell. And the human deal has different phases like being a kid or being a teenager or being a young person or being middle-aged or being older. And they're all part of the human experience. One is not right or wrong, good or bad. You know, some are more pleasant and some are le sometimes are less pleasant. That's true but the experience is part of the human experience, all of which includes the potential for awakening. Because the awakening is part of the human experience. And I said this in some of the groups, but I'll say it again here. I always have appreciated and loved the teachers who say, oh yeah, the whole Dharma is sitting right here. Right? The whole Dharma is sitting right in your seat. And that's very clear, good teaching as far as I'm concerned. And very, um, it, and, and I don't think we can hear that enough because we often think the, the Dharma is somewhere else. It's a spirit rock. 
you know, or if it's up at some other, it's at IMS or it's at some other retreat center that you've been to, like, oh, that's where the, or the Dharma is where the monastic community lives, or the Dharma is in Tibet, or the Dharma is in Bhutan, right? And those are nice um, idealizations of the Dharma, but as far as I can tell, the whole Dharma is sitting right here. And it's ours to discover. And that's what the Buddha was teaching and pointing at when he gave us the teachings that have been laid down for 2,600 years in many different ways, right? Because the Theravada is one form and the Mahayana is one form and the Vajrayana is another form and the Pure Land teachings and they're probably Buddhist teachings. I don't even know exactly what they're called, but they're also part of the pointing at what's sitting right here. And that's why we keep encouraging, asking you to turn to your direct experience because that's where the Dharma is. And when I first started practicing many years ago, I was first with a a guru-type person who was interesting enough. I learned a lot from him. Then he kicked me out of his group, which was a blessing. And um, uh, as dukkha can often be, paradoxically, a blessing, right? And... uh, and he kicked me out of his group. And so I went looking around for places to meditate because I liked meditating. And I ended up going to Zen Center at San Francisco. And I wasn't really interested in Buddhism or any of that stuff, but they let you in free and you could go in at 5.30 in the morning and go sit with them. And then they did ceremonies and stuff, but you didn't, I didn't have to stay for that. I could just go sit with people. So I was happy to do that. But what I always found really interesting at Zen Center was how they called you to practice. They have a big piece of wood, big thick piece of wood, like that thick and about this big, and they bang on it, right? They bang. And then the banging, and slowly over time, the banging gets a little faster. Right? And, and you know, if you're not in the hall, you don't get in, right? So that's, that's how you get called to practice. And I always appreciated it because it was very clear and you knew if you were late, you wouldn't get in, but it, you know, you, you were being called to practice. And what was written on this thick piece of wood, it said, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Great is the matter of birth and death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken. Do not waste your life. So that was what was calling people to practice. And I always appreciated it. And I especially appreciated it. They said, great is the matter of birth and death. And birth and death had a birth hyphen and hyphen death. One thing 
They were different but connected. And, they, and it said something, it was a beautiful Dharma teaching right there about the nature of reality, that birth always has death. Just like death begins from birth. And it's true of the humans and the animals and the plants and the insects and the, as far as I can tell, you know, I'm not super scientifically sophisticated, but as far as I can tell, all life has birth, lives, and dies. And that is the natural order of things. So I like that very much because it already begins to point to why do we contemplate death in Buddhism? Why, why are we here contemplating death? Except we know a little more than when you're maybe 20 or 30 about why you're contemplating death because we're closer to death. And that's a normal part of life. And this is part of the paradox of practice. This is not a mistake. We're not here because, oh, we made a mistake and we're all going to die. Right? The people who didn't make the mistake that got us here, they're also going to die. Right? Same deal. And I always liked, I liked the poem that Anna had the other night. Let's see if I can find it. The, the Dakini speaks, because it begins, my friends, let's grow up. Beautiful beginning. My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? And it's just the way reality is. It's not that there's something wrong. It's not a problem in the bigger picture of things. This is what happens. Everything that can be lost will be lost, including us. And so in Buddhism, the Buddha talked about what we're doing. He said this, he said, of all the footprints in the jungle, of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Right? So he's different time, different culture, different place than we're in right at the moment. And he's, he's relating to his world and he's teaching the Dharma by relating to the world. And he's, he says, of all the footprints in the jungle, that of the elephant is supreme. Of all the mindfulness practices, mindfulness of death is supreme. Mindfulness of death is supreme. Of all the mindfulness practices, because it opens the door to reality for all of us to the Dharma. It opens the door to the Dharma for all of us. It opens the door to the truth for all of us. <clears throat> and as we've been saying or hoping, hopefully, hopefully uh, pointing at, uh, we awaken by getting real, by being real, not by being fake 
or not by being just I not just idealizing things or not just pretending about things or not just imagining but by getting more and more here in a very full experiential way and discovering what is here what is sitting in each seat that the dharma is the whole dharma is right here <clears throat> And so our practice, our practice of being aware, and mostly we've just been hanging out with the first foundation of mindfulness, right? Mindfulness of the body, mindfulness of breath, mindfulness of postures, mindfulness of the uh, elements, elemental nature, earth, air, fire, water. Um, Mindfulness of death is part of the body practice in Buddhism in that first foundation of mindfulness. And the Buddha would have people reflect on dead bodies. He would actually have his followers go and sit in the cemetery, in the charnel ground, really, not cemetery, in the charnel ground. Because some people at that time, at that place, could not afford the wood that it would take to be burnt up. So they would just leave the bodies, right? and the bodies would decompose. And so the, the practitioners, the meditators, us, we would be invited to go and sit and contemplate the decomposing body. And not to feel bad or, you know, get sick or anything. It wasn't done like that. It was done to, to re- see what happens to a body when it dies and to reflect, oh, this body will also be like that body. That's, that's the whole practice of Maranasati at that point in the teachings, is to see, oh, this body will be like that body. And, and of course, watching a body decompose, I've sat with bodies as long as three days, and you even see, you know, you see the body change, keeps changing the body. You know, don't worry, if you don't look good when you die, you won't stay the same. So don't worry about that. It won't be just one look for the whole time. It'll keep changing. And, uh, you know, and it's it's just wild to see when the, whatever enlivens the body leaves the body, the body is not what enlivened it. And if you've, how many people have sat with a dead body? Right? It's, it's something. Often sh- a little shocking or surprising or disturbing. But also it's very, there's some, you know, of course my always, the real question underneath that I've always had, and I've been with a number of dead bodies, where did they go? And what was the they that went? Right? And so, so it's, a, it's an important question, it's an important component of reality that we're investigating here, which is ourselves, because we're all going to go. Here's one of my positives, you know, this is a tricky talk to talk about death, but I like to put a, a few positives in. We're all going to succeed, okay? <laughs> Nobody, you won't fail, you won't get an F, you know, on your report card at the end. It'll, 
Human beings are really good at being part of nature in that way. And we're part of, we are nature, right? That's what we are. And there is, and I like to put in something positive because there's a lot of resistance and reaction to death, right? Anybody notice that, right? Right? You want to be personal about this, and it's a personal deal, death, because we're going to die, as well as everybody else is going to die who we know or care for or think about, love. And in the Mahabharata, they have this question. They say, what is the greatest marvel? What is the greatest marvel? And the answer is, each day death strikes and we live as though we are immortal. Right? And it's just very, and they say, this is the greatest marvel. And that is, tends to be, probably not totally, but tends to be a cross-cultural phenomenon that we all tend to, we know death is there, but we don't really believe it's going to happen to us. Right? Not really. We don't really let it in all the way. There's some resistance. There's some denial. There's some pretending. And, you know, I don't have a problem with that. I'm happy with people doing whatever they want. We can pretend all we want. But at some point, reality will reveal the truth in a way that can't be denied. And that can either be very disturbing, or we can start to hopefully have come into harmony with the way things are. Because that's such a key part of Buddhist teaching. And even simple mindfulness practice, that's a little bit all we're trying to do here is be in harmony with where things are. We have more dukkha sitting here if we're not in harmony with what's actually here. Right? If we actually, if we're trying to pretend, oh, I feel great and my knee is killing me, you know, it just doesn't, it's not real. It doesn't work. And also then we feel, then the judging mind comes in. Oh, I'm such a bad meditator. I should be happy. I've got to meditate. I don't, you know, I don't have to, you know, cook my food right now. And, and, but, but we're not happy. If we're not aware of the not happiness, then we're not coming into alignment with the way things are on the relative level. And the coming into alignment on the relative level leads to the Dharma revealing itself to us. <clears throat> so, yeah, coming into harmony with the way things are, I really appreciate that because it asks us to be real and to be honest and to be sincere and to not deny what's here, even whether it's pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Whatever the Vedana might be, we don't want to deny what's here. And you could notice even where you're at right now, what's the Vedana right now? Is the talk pleasant or unpleasant or neutral? Are you having a reaction? Are you aware of the reaction? Or maybe you really like the talk. Are you aware of the liking? And because we can stay practicing 24-7, and that's always my hope about 
teaching is that we keep learning that all of life is practice. All of life is practice. It's all an opportunity to wake up. And it doesn't mean we have to live life at Spirit Rock to wake up. It means we live our life. We work, we have friends, we have communities, we have families, we have what, whatever we want in whatever way. And it all becomes, we bring the same wakefulness and awareness and presence to that life. So that life starts to reveal reality on deeper and deeper levels. And so being real leads to awakening, to freedom, to what's called in Buddhism, the sure heart's release. Isn't that a nice phrase? The sure heart's release. That's one of the metaphors for awakening in, in the Theravada tradition. I just love that, the sure heart's release. That we give our heart to what's here and reality reveals itself. Kalu Rinpoche, who is one of the great Tibetan teachers, he put it this way. He said, we live in illusion and the appearance of things. We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. The whole Dharma, right there, right? We live in illusion and the appearance of things. There is a reality. You are that reality. When you discover this, you will see that you are nothing. And being nothing, you are everything. That is all. <clears throat> so in the Theravada tradition, there's a lot of teaching about death. It's, it's an important teaching. And I ran out to get the Majjhima Nikaya, the middle-length sayings of the Buddha. And there's a story in here that I love very much called Advice to Anattapindaka. And Anattapindaka was like us. He was a lay person and a very devoted follower of the Buddha. And he gave the first land, he was a donor also, and he really supported the Buddha establishing an order. He gave the first land that became the first monastery so that the Buddha and his followers had a place to practice. He gave, he gave the first spirit rock in northern India. He did. And it was almost as expensive as this spirit rock, if not more. Really, actually, the story is not here in, the sto in this story, but I know the story. The story was he, was he wanted to give some land to the Buddha for a monastery for the practitioners. And, and he went looking around. He found the beautiful place, Jetta's Grove. And uh, Jetta was a prince. And Jetta was like, uh, and he went to Jetta to get the land. And Jetta, he said, you want my land? Jetta said this. And Anathapitnika said, yes, I want it for the Buddha, and blah, blah. And, and Jetta thought about it. And he was a good businessman. He said, well, if you cover the land with gold, you can have it. Right? And this was not just like this much land. It was like Spirit Rock and a number of hundred acres of land. 
and uh, maybe it wasn't quite that big, but it was big. And uh, Anatta Pindika, who had been a businessman and a good businessman, he said, it's a deal. And he covered the land with gold, and that's how the Buddha got his first land. So you could think about that when you're asked later about donating to Spirit Rock. <laughs> and, <you know. laughs> Boy, the finance people love it that I got that in there. <laughs> I hadn't thought of that before. So, okay, here's the story about Anattapindika. It's near the end of his life. He's older. He's not well. The Buddha hears about it that he's not well, and he sends two of his main disciples, Sariputta and uh, Ananda, to go visit him and see how, how is he doing. And he says... Uh, and they ask him, how is he doing? And he says, I am not, I am not getting well. I am not comfortable. My painful feelings are increasing, not subsiding. Their increase and in not subsiding is apparent. And then he gives examples of what, what he's experiencing. Just as if a strong person were splitting my head open with a sharp sword, so two violent winds cut through my head. I'm not getting well. Just as if a strong person were tightening a tough leather strap around my head as a headband, so too there are violent pains in my head. I'm not getting well. Just as if a skilled butcher or his apprentice were to carve up an ox's belly with a sharp butcher's knife, so too violent winds are carving up my belly. I am not getting well. And he's going out, well, wait till we have some of these sharp winds because they'll, they'll come. You know, and then he, the last one, he says, just as if two men were to seize a we weaker man by arms and, and roast him over a pit of hot coals, so too there is a violent burning in my body. I'm not getting well. And so they pay some attention to this. They hear where he's at. And they say, um, okay, householder, you should train yourself thus. And here's the training they give him at the end of his life. And I'm only going to read a little because it, it goes on, but it's, you'll hear it's the same theme. Theme, I will not cling to the eye and my consciousness will not be dependent on the eye. I will not cling to the ear, to the nose, to the tongue. I will not cling to the body. I will not cling to the mind. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the mind. Okay? So they're giving him the teachings of letting go, of not clinging, of not holding on. And, they, and then they go on, I will not, you know, they say, train yourself thus, I will not cling to forms, sounds, odors, flavors, tangibles, mind objects, etc. I will not cling to the various forms of consciousness that arise with eye, ear, nose, mind, etc. And then they go... Um, where else would be? Uh, and then the elements. I will not cling to the earth element. I will not cling to the water element, the fire element, the air element. I will not cling to the space element. I will not cling to the consciousness element. And my consciousness will not be dependent on the consciousness element. I will not cling to material form, to feeling, to perception, to formations, to consciousness, and my consciousness will not be dependent on consciousness. So they're giving him radical teachings of letting go. 
and they keep and they keep going, and they even tell them to let go of of um, states of consciousness that come with deep meditation. I will not. Uh, uh, you should train yourself thus. I will not cling to the base of infinite space. I will not cling to the base of infinite consciousness. I will not cling to the base of nothingness. I will not cling to the base of neither perception nor non-perception. And these are real, realizable states of consciousness, some of which I've had tastes of in deep practice. And they're lovely. They're like totally blissful and out there and quiet and sublime really but he said oh yeah we're not going to cling to any of that sublime experience and then he goes on he says you should train yourself thus i will not cling to this world and my consciousness will not be dependent on this world i will not cling to the world beyond and my consciousness will not be dependent on the world beyond and then they, he just keeps going about not clinging, not clinging. And with this, and as this was said, the householder Ananda Pindaka wept and shed tears. And the venerable Ananda asked him, are you foundering, meaning dying, householder, are you sinking? And he says, no, I am not foundering, venerable Ananda. I am not sinking, but although I have long waited on the teacher, the Buddha, and, and the bhikkhus, the practitioners worthy of esteem, never before have I heard such a talk on the Dharma. Right? So it's the first time he's heard this. And he says such a talk on, and then Ananda says such a talk on the Dharma is not given to lay people. Such a talk on the Dharma is given to those who have gone forth to the monastics. And it's not here, but I, I wanted to know why hasn't, you know, why did that happen? Because, here, I'll finish the story. So then, um, um, so Anattapindika says, well, please, let such talk on the Dharma be given to householders. There are people with little dust on their eyes who are wasting away through not hearing such talk on the Dharma. There will be those who understand, meaning wake up with this talk. And, and in, the, in the time and culture at that age, the belief was, oh, if, if we give those teachings of letting go, this radical letting go to householders, they won't fulfill their responsibilities. And that's why they hesitated to give it. Now, he was dying, so they're giving him now. But they also got this transmission from a Natapindaka, which we are the beneficiaries of, which is the full teaching for everybody, whether monastic or whether householders, lay people. And so I always very much appreciate Anattapindaka because we are the beneficiaries of his speaking up in this way. And so this is a little bit the teaching of how do we practice with aging and death, which is seeing as um, was said in the poem, right, right? Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal. Everything that can be lost will be lost. So it doesn't make common sense to grasp to anything. It doesn't mean we don't live our life fully, totally, 
and responsibly and interactively and love things and care about things and commit to things, but also we don't have to hold on to anything at the same time. And that's part of the paradox of the Dharma, that we can fully engage in life with our whole heart and let go at the same time. And so part of the Buddha's teaching about death is also characterized in the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Uh, Maha means great. Uh, Parinibbana is mean, also means, it all means great Nibbana, great awakening, great freedom, which is the story of the Buddha's death. The story of the Buddha's death. And it's a great story to read in the text. Because what, what do you think the Buddha does when he realizes, because he's got a lot of, he's, in, he's intuitive, that's not the right word, but it's good enough. He knows he's going to die, and he knows very soon. And so what do you think he does? Just, just see in your own mind what you imagine he might do with that information. So he does something I think is very beautiful. He goes to all his, he goes around a last round to all his followers and talks about how to live. Because death, the reality of death informs how to live. It puts it in perspective. And it, I hope, for all of us, keeps bringing forward what we value and what we care about and what we love and allows us to and allows us to give ourselves to life very fully because it's a temporary deal right and we're only here for a short time right 10 20 30 40 50 60 70 80 90 100 now they're saying 110 120 I'm not, I'm not expecting to make that I'm happy to be here today, really, given I've had my own near-death experience. But it's a beautiful archetypal story about death being about how to live life when you look at the death of Buddha, who was one of, in my language, one of the most mature human beings to live. When I think of awakening, I even, I, you know, I'm okay with awakening. I don't like the word enlightenment at all, but I, awakening I, I like. But the, really the, what I see is, oh, he became a mature human being, a whole nother level of maturity than is the conventional level of maturity, which is also an important level of human development. We need to become mature people, responsible, take care of things, pay the bills, whatever, whatever it is in our time and place and culture. But also he saw, oh, there's another level of maturity possible for us and it's possible for each of us. And he pointed to that when he woke up. And so death is about learning how to live life. And I appreciate it because it 
brings another dharmic paradox forward, which is the dharma is both personal and impersonal at the same time. It's personal and it's impersonal at the same time. Because I'm going to die, right? And when, and you may also be dying, but I'm going to experience this death different than I experience your death. This is personal. And it's not personal. It's just what happens if you have a body. And they're both true. And this is understood really well. This is what I'm doing is a little bit riffing on what are called the two truths in Buddhism, the truth of relative reality and the truth of ultimate reality. And what I love about the teachings of the two truths is that they're both true. It's not one or the other, which is how my kind of rational mind goes at things. It's not, oh, they're both true. And in, in Zen, I love that they always say this, they're equally true. They're equally true, the two truths. And so death, uh, personally for me, has been an important part of practice. Every which way. And who, who knows why exactly, but I was interested in it as soon as I found out about it in Buddhism. And I, I was practicing, I was doing a lot of retreat practice and loved retreat practice, but I didn't, wa- I didn't want to go off and be a monastic because I was a parent and I wanted to be involved with my family, my daughter. And, um, and, um, and I remember coming off a retreat and I found out that the Zen Hospice Project had started. And I thought, oh, I want to do that. And I started calling them and they didn't call me back. It was a pain in the ass, actually, to be honest. <laughs> really, I called them a bunch of times. And I could, finally, I got, a, I got a hold of somebody and they responded to me. And they were like, well, you know, you have to come in. We have to interview. You missed the training, basically. I was on the retreat while the training was happening. He said, you missed the training, but come in and we'll meet with you. And, and I went in and met with... Um, it was started by Martha de Barrios, who I love, who is a total bodhisattva and a good friend, Frank Ostaseski. And so I went in, and I, this is when I first met Frank, and he interviewed me, and he was checking me out to see. He wanted to make sure I wasn't too crazy to, to do hospice work. And so, uh, you know, he, he thought I was uh, good enough. And he said, okay, you could do a little, but we're not really going to let you be with people who are dying. You can help us by doing, going, buying supplies or getting stuff. Or, and I was like, okay, okay, I'm, I was happy to do that because I just wanted to be involved with the hospice. And then they, then they just got their first person in late, later, in a few days, a week or two. And they... Uh, and then I got a call from Frank. He said, can you come in and be with somebody, you know, one day? I'm like, uh, sure. And, uh, and he said, okay. And I didn't know what happened. Later I found out, you know, they got somebody. They didn't have enough volunteers. They needed somebody to cover a shift. So he brought me in. And I thought, okay, Frank's going to train me. I thought, beautiful. So I get brought in. And this was still, they didn't even have a building yet. So it was in Zen Center. And I get taken up to meet this woman, Stella, big woman in a bed, and 
L. And Frank's there, and Frank's there for introducing me and um, just showing me around the room, and then he leaves. I'm like, shit, I don't know what to do. So I did a, one good thing. I said, you know, Stella, I didn't get trained, so I don't know what to do here. She said, oh, it's okay, honey, we all need a little help. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> and she trained me, and it was, it was great to hang out with Stella. And, you know, look out the window and help move her and things like that. Now I'm having a lot of hospice memories. I should not go there too much. But so it was a, it was a powerful time in my life because I spent a lot of time with people dying. And people would always say these things to me about how great I was that I was going and doing this. And I could never explain, oh, you don't get it. This is like I'm the recipient Right, that these people would allow me to come in and be with them at this phase of life because it's quite a mysterious time of life that somebody is dying and quite a powerful and beautiful time of life, especially when we relax about it, which a lot of people who know they're in hospice and know they're dying, they start to relax and then it's just a blessing to be able to serve in that way. And so I did for many years. And the, the death part, the whole idea of death loses its... negative valence. It's the most natural, normal thing in the world. It's, I mean, that's really like the best thing I could ever tell anybody. It's just normal. We die. People die. And it doesn't mean we want to die. I'm not saying that or we like it. But it's also totally normal. It's not a mistake. You didn't do something wrong and that's why you're dying. We're all going to die because that's what happens. And so to be able to hang around and practice, which is a lot what you do when you're doing hospice. Sometimes I would just sit in somebody's room and I'd be following their breath or my breath or both their breath and my breath. Because that's all that's happening. And it starts to relax and open up the heart and mind all kinds of ways. And I've also spent time with people dying, my parents, which was very powerful, a very, you know, touching and very humorous also. I want to make sure that gets in here. You know, there's some humor about death. It's not just like all serious, or it is serious, and it's also funny at times. Here, I'll give you one example, personal, I think is funny, <laughs> or, or I thought, you know, I was with my mother as she died. Um, and um, actually, I wasn't right with her as she was dying. I was, I was in L.A. visiting because I knew she was dying and helping take care of her. And uh, I was at a little motel away from their place. And, um, and uh, actually, I'm remembering this now. Uh, and I remember... I. I woke up and I, I got, oh, something, something happened, something happened. And I got in the shower to take a shower to go and the phone rang because she had died. 
and I had gotten it, you know, I'd just gotten it because consciousness is permeable in ways we don't often believe or know. And so I got it. So then I went over and then, you know, I've spent enough time with dead bodies that we, we cleaned her body, right? And we're cleaning her body and it's me and my two brothers, right? And we're all adults and all, but um, um, I hadn't seen my mother naked in many years, like, you know, 40 years or 35 years at that point, you know, since I was a kid. So, you know, she's naked and I'm looking and I'm, and I'm reflecting on her, I'm looking at her body and I think, oh, those are the breasts that, you know, nurtured me and that I drank from. And, and I'm having this kind of reverie about her breasts and, you know, and then I remember, oh no, she, I always got bottle fed. I never. <laughs> I was like, and, I was, and I was so disappointed. <laughs> you know, but you just see what the mind will make up things about anything. <laughs> and it was funny, you know, even there with, with I mean, I laughed about it because, you know, yeah, this, you know, that's what I wished had happened was, was that she had breastfed me, but that wasn't, that wasn't encouraged right at that time in um, that culture in America, which is like totally insane as far as I'm concerned. But anyhow, so, and also um, I spent a lot of time with my dad who lived to 92, I can't remember if it's 91 or 92. My mother died younger, but my dad lived later. And, uh, and uh, he lived quite a while and then he died. And I remember how powerful it was to see his body when he was dead. Because it was so freeing in a way I didn't expect. Because I'd been around bodies and I'm, I'm comfortable enough. Be, but it was my dad. And I realized, oh, he's not an old man anymore. And it was so, and I realized I had fixated him in my heart and mind as an old man, because he's 91, he'd been an old man for a while. And he wasn't an old man anymore. And I just got how freeing even death can be from the holding we might have about who or what somebody is or who and what we are. <clears throat> And so there's a kind of positivity that can happen even with this part of practice that we call death. Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who did a lot of the early death and dying work in the contemporary culture here in America, she said, I told my children that when I die, that when I die, she said, to release balloons in the sky to celebrate that I graduated. Isn't that a different way to think about it? She said, I told my children that when I died, I released balloons in the sky to celebrate that I graduated. For me, death is a graduation. So, and I, and I don't know exactly what she means, but I know I will have an opportunity to find out relatively soon. You know, in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, or next week, who knows, right? We don't know when we're going to die. 
So I'll say just a couple more things from the Buddhist perspective, from a few perspectives. How do people who practice deal with death? Right? Because we are going to be people who practice who will deal with death. And I love what Suzuki Roshi said. It's a story. Somebody went up to his room not long before his death. He was in bed, extremely weak, his skin discolored. He bowed, I bowed, right, in the Zen. And then he looked right at me and said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, he said, don't grieve for me. Don't grieve for me. Don't worry. I know who I am. Now that's a powerful statement. I know who I am. And he wasn't talking about the ego self, I know who I am. He was talking about who he was. Or I could say it slightly differently in my language, he knew what he was. And he wasn't afraid to know that. Meaning he knew it so well, it was not a problem. Don't grieve for me. And there's other, I have, a, I have lots of stories actually. I'm going to just give you one more humorous one. <clears throat> so often Zen masters will write a, a Zen death poem. Like, you know, the week that they're dying or the day that they're dying. That's very common. I have a whole set of Zen death poems here. But the one that I like very much is from Tao Wei, who announced tomorrow I'm going to the monks and nuns and to the lay people. An attendant asked him for a death verse. And he said, he said, oh, without a verse I can't die, right? Because <laughs> that's part of the tradition, right? So he's got to write a verse. So he wrote, birth is thus. Birth is thus. Death is thus. Birth is thus, death is thus, verse or no verse, what's the fuss? <laughs> you know, that's not a bad way to go out with a little humor. I'll read you one last piece from Ajahn Chah, who's my teacher's teacher you know, for many years and uh, is part of the lineage that is what's woven into Spirit Rock. Really part of this lineage is you're, we're all sitting in Ajahn Chah's world here to some extent. And he writes, you know, in a, and you can get this online, it's called Your True Home. I'm not going to read all of it, I'll read a little. He says, now determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. With, yeah, during the time, oh, he's speaking to someone who's ill. That's, what's, that's where this is from. During the time that I'm speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it was the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. And he's come to visit this, it's a woman, I believe, who, who is dying. He says, today I've, I've brought nothing material of any substance to offer you. Listen well, understand that the Buddha himself, with his, store of, his great store of accumulated virtue, could not avoid physical death. Right? So he's immediately normalizing 
our death and the Buddha's death, because even the Buddha, he died. And then he continues, says, when he reached old age, he relinquished his body and its heavy burden. And then he talks about the this lump of flesh in decline is called Saka Dhamma, the truth, the truth of this body. And it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha, Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and to come to terms with its nature, with its normalcy, I'm adding on here. And then he said, and then Ajahn Chah says, the Buddha said that rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can maintain itself in any one state for long. Everything experiences change and estrangement, just as we were discussing this afternoon, change or impermanence. He says, this is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. But the Buddha said that what we can do is to contemplate the body and contemplate the mind so that we see their impersonality, see that neither of them is me or mine, right? This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position. Even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples, they differed from us in only one respect, right? This truth of the nature of life and death and the fact that we can't control it, right? The truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everyone is in the same position, even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples. They differed from us in only one respect and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. Their acceptance of the way things are. They saw it could be no other way. So let's sit for a minute, please. The Buddha said that what we can do is contemplate the body and mind so to see their impersonality, see that neither of them is me or mine. for your presence. We have uh, some time for walking meditation. Thank you for listening. 
To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.